Thank you, Ken, for that reading. And it's great to see everybody here tonight uh, on a very wet night. Well, this sermon tonight marks a conclusion to the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul highlights the privileges we have as believers in Christ. You may remember those great sweeping images, chosen, predestined, adopted, united, ransomed. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he instructs us to live out these great privileges. Well, this last talk actually arches over all the book as we face an enemy who is seeking to destroy our faith. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would speak to us, both the speaker this tonight and all those who are hearing. May we come to this part of your word ready to listen, have ears to hear, and indeed apply what you've asked us to do. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. For six years I worked with the Australian Air Force. During that time I learned many new skills, one of which was how to shoot an automatic weapon, and another how to throw a live grenade. Uh, very useful for the Air Force, uh, not so helpful now. Uh, this training was to be used in the improbable event of a conventional war, where I'd be able to actually see the enemy, defend myself, to stand firm and hold my ground against any possible attack. Ephesians 6 tells us a battle is raging. Paul mentions armour, verse 11, wrestling or struggle, a shield, flaming arrows, a helmet and a sword. And we're told it's a fight in which we're all involved. Although the enemy is mentioned, verse 11, the devil, his troops operate in the heavenly realms in an unseen sphere. Friends, there is more going on in the spiritual world than we can actually see. Already in this book, astonishing claims have been made. God unites everything in the universe through Christ, and he has put everything under his authority. God has created a new humanity out of old hostilities. We've been chosen by God before the creation of the world and have been raised with Christ and are seated with him in the heavenly realms. What a great introduction. But you might conclude from such soaring claims that there is no more struggle against evil, either in the world or within ourselves. Of course, we've got ample evidence that's not the case. From daily experience, we know that. And even before chapter 6, Ephesians has been clear that evil spiritual forces, although defeated, are still active. And chapter, two, chapter 2 tells us that the devil will still lead people away in their disobedient ways. And where does Paul find himself? He's under house arrest in this particular part of the chapter, in verse 20. God's victory cannot be snatched away. The cross and resurrection have assured us that the devil is defeated foe, but he is still very active, and he and his army have not surrendered. Sooner or later, every believer will discover that the Christian life is a battleground and not a playground. Well, how do you fight in this kind of battle when the enemy is actually unseen? 
How do you hold your ground? Stand firm against such an adversary. What weapons do you use? And what strategies can be employed? I have four observations from this passage that we need to know if we want to survive in this intense war. My first observation comes from verse 11. Know the enemy and his schemes. Verse 11 tells us we're to stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The war is against the devil and his group. Our battle is not ultimately against one another, as surprising as that may seem. Though the devil may use governments and wicked people for his schemes, ultimately the battle is against his agents, those who reside in the unseen realms in the heavenly places. Now the devil we know is both an accuser and a liar. He's described that way in other parts of scripture. His name actually means slanderer or adversary. And from scripture, we can see how he has operated. We have seen his scheme in the garden of Genesis 3, when the devil used a serpent to cast out over God's word. Did God really say? Now we're not beyond a similar temptation. We reside in one of the most sophisticated cities in Australia, where people are well-read, highly educated, and actually individuals travel several thousand kilometres from overseas countries to attend our universities. And people can actually name a wine by simply smelling the bouquet, or tell you the workings of the most highly refined engine. Yes, we live in a clever, cultured, sophisticated city. But there is no room in people's minds for the devil nor his schemes. For many, it just seems the word of fantasy. And as you look at a passage such as this, and you say to yourself, it sounds more like a comic book than sacred scripture. The image of a Roman soldier looks lame, old-fashioned, irrelevant, especially in the world of laser-guided missiles, drone attacks, nuclear weaponry. And you can actually dismiss what God has written. We may have taken on the thinking that science is the ultimate answer to all of life's questions and is the final arbiter of truth. But you can't put God in a bottle. Our minds are limited at best and knowledge is only ever partial. With all the advances that we have in science, and there have been many, it still hadn't resolved our moral problem. We can also fall into the trap believing that our ultimate problem is either a social or psychological one. So the lack of government funding for good parenting classes, for the financial disadvantage, for better models or mentors, for stronger schools or hospitals, as good as they may be, if the funding was there, then all our troubles would be solved. And if all our problems are social or psychological, then somebody else is always to blame. And no one becomes accountable for their actions. It's always somebody else's fault. Everything is simply the result of social or psychological factors. 
but they never deal with the root of the problem, the problem of evil. And we don't speak of evil because it implies value judgments and no one in our time and space wants to be seen as judgmental. However, you may be the most educated, socially aware, financially resourced, winsome person in your suburb and yet be totally absorbed, self-centred and have no time for God. The Bible presents rebellion against God and his ways as the number one problem in our life. Romans 1.18 tells us the wrath of God is still against all ungodliness. And the devil would love to rob you of assurance and cast out that you're a child of God. The devil will remind you of all your sins to take you, back, take you back down memory lane using his slandering ways. Let you believe that Christians are beyond repeated sins, that your life should be free from all anxiety, or that the sins you've committed are so bad that they're actually beyond the mercy of God and rob you of the joy of being his child. He'll actually put the, de the seed of doubt in your mind and I say to you, is this really true or am I living a fantasy? Already in this letter, we're told the devil seeks to alienate humanity by disobedience and ignorance and corrupted thinking. He tries to separate people from each other through the sins of greed, falsehood and anger. So how do we stand against these rulers, against the authorities, powers and the spiritual forces described in verse 12? Here is my second observation. Verse 10. Be strong in the Lord. Well, how are we going to be strong? The foe seems so mighty, so strong. By relying on his mighty strength. The source is not in us, but an external source. We're told to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Paul isn't suggesting that we go into a spiritual fitness centre to gain spiritual mass muscle, to enable us to, to whip the devil. Instead, we stand on the Lord's strength, the same strength that had the power to raise Jesus from the dead. Now, some translations have tried to bring that out, that the strength comes from what the Lord has provided. So one translation has it like this, draw your strength from the Lord. Another has suggested it, let the Lord make you strong. And a third, let the mighty strength of the Lord make you strong. We are strong through what God has provided. My third observation comes from verses 11 and 13. Put on the whole armour of God. The purpose of the armour is to make sure Christians will be able to stand. Four times Paul uses the word stand. Once in verse 11 twice in verse 13 and again in verse 14. We don't need to cower in the corner of the room and throw up the white flag of surrender. God will help you to stand. He is by your side. God has provided the armour for you to stand and be ready for battle. The armour is described in verses 14 to 17. We're called not to go demon hunting 
or seeking to bind them, nor caught to even defeat the devil. That's already been done on the cross. And we have read how this battle is universal in proportions. Yet the weapons that we're told to use sound very mundane, even pedestrian. Look at them with me, verse 14. Truth, righteousness, verse 15. Good news of peace, verse 16. Faith. And lastly, the sword of the Spirit, which are the Scriptures, and indeed the only attacking weapon that is mentioned in this part of Scripture. The weapons in this battle are the exact tools necessary to defeat such a powerful enemy. Paul is saying the church's basic equipment in the spiritual battle is integrity and righteous living. They're effective because they bear the very stamp of Jesus. However, we realise that wearing the full armour doesn't stop temptation to sin or actually diminish the challenges we face. They don't disappear when we become Christians, but the armour helps us to stand. Paul doesn't call the believers to invade the domain of evil. He calls on them to stand, maintaining what Christ has already won. My last observation is in verse 18. To pray. There could be people here today who actually have never heard this before, never realised that they're involved in a cosmic battle. Life seems to be going well, no heads are spinning, nothing extraordinary is occurring, and wonder why you even mention the devil at all. But there are times in Scripture when the spiritual curtain has been pulled back and we gain a glimpse of the devil at work. When Jesus says to Peter that Satan had wanted to sift him, Jesus goes on to say, I prayed for you. Now Jesus has the power to do anything. Anyone who's read his life in any of the Gospels would have seen that. But he says to Peter, I prayed for you as if that was all that was needed. And if you don't believe the spiritual battle we face, you'll never see the necessity or the urgency for prayer. And yet prayer appears so passive. It looks so inactive and out of step with our busy-do culture. And it's easy for us to take that thinking on board and lose our momentum and not pray. But in this battle, we're told prayer is a key element. It's crucial if you want to stand against the devil and his schemes. Prayer was part of the air that Jesus actually breathed. And it was always central to his teaching. And Paul echoes the same thinking here in this part of Ephesians. Prayer is not an add-on to conclude the letter. Rather, every part of this cosmic battle, standing firm, putting on the whole armour, fighting with a spiritual sword, have all been bathed in prayer. And in verse 18 we're told we're to pray continually because our struggle with the power of darkness is never-ending. Armour will rust if it's not oiled by prayer. The church's struggle? Well, it's a heavenly one against spiritual forces but it's acted out on a much more mundane level in the types of behaviour to which we're called.
The armour of God enables Christians to encounter such difficulties and through perseverance and prayer, the church may boldly proclaim the gospel even in the midst of persecution and hardship. Paul's spiritual battle doesn't end with the conclusion of this book. And what's to believe to be the last letter he wrote before his martyrdom, he wrote in 2 Timothy these words, I have fought the good fight. He's still at war, still at battle. But he says, I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul was still engaged in the battle until his very dying day. But he stood firm. He kept the faith. He never took off the armour. He was always prepared for battle. And he was committed to prayer. Be strong. Put on the whole armour of God. Stand and pray. Let me do that right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in such a sophisticated city like the one in which we live, uh, it's easy to look at a passage like this and either dismiss it or not take it with the seriousness that is indeed written. So we ask that we would take heed of what you have mentioned and use all the weapons that you have asked us to so indeed we can stand firm. And as Paul said, that we will continue in our faith until that last day when we'll meet you face to face. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.